Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Yeah, mine's on the 28th. It has been for a long, long time. <laughs> a long time. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. We've been uh, <coughs> preaching through Mark for quite some time. And, um, you know, it's one of the short, it's the shortest gospel, Mark's account, and it moves along very speedily, and yet it's difficult to move through it very quickly when you realize the richness and fullness of even Mark's uh, terse words and his way of expressing things. At this point in time, Jesus has completed his ministry in Galilee. He left Galilee and began making his way towards Jerusalem. He has entered Jerusalem on at least two occasions and will soon here be his third and final entry into the city. He immediately went to the temple and one of the first things he did was to cleanse the temple area. It had been defiled, especially in the court of the Gentiles, because they were selling doves, changing money, making it into a marketplace. And one of the things we noted about that was they were in the court of the Gentiles. And by taking over this place on this most important occasion of all, Passover, they had eliminated any opportunity for Gentiles to come and worship the Lord. And yet Jesus reminded them, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And he says, you have made it a den of thieves. And what a condemnation, what a way to start your, your ministry in the city of Jerusalem by condemning the religious leaders and for what they had allowed to take place in the temple area, the most important place of all for a Jew when thousands of pilgrims would come to the city every Passover to worship the Lord, offer their sacrifices, and to give, and so forth. So, Jesus then begins to, uh, begins to teach uh, throughout his time there, and <coughs> we saw also that one of the more significant things that he did was the encountering of this fig tree. Looking upon it, finding leaves out of season, not in the normal time, but because it had leaves, expecting to find fruit and finding none. And because he found none, then he says in verse 18 uh, and 19, uh, the end of that day, the scribes and the chief priests heard it. Now, they are the most significant people in Jesus' life at this point. And over another verse we'll see in a few minutes, they add the elders, because they were the religious leaders. These are the ones that Jesus was confronting. They were his avowed enemies. Right from the very beginning, you might remember earlier in Mark's gospel, they had made up their mind they were going to kill this guy. 
And so then in verse 20, as they saw the fig tree, not only had it not produced roots, but because or fruit, but because of the curse, it had withered and completely dried up all the way down to the roots. Now, the fig tree, of course, represented Israel. And this was a picture. This was a way of Jesus foretelling what was going to happen to the nation. Because they were going to wither up and dry and be gone. And in 70 AD, when the Roman general Titus came into town, he and his welcoming committee fulfilled what Jesus told them would happen. And they completely demolished the city and they took the temple apart, stone by stone, every last vestige of any memory or any visible uh, sight of the temple was gone. And of course, you know, all they have left today is that even reminds them of the temple is the temple area and the western wall. There's nothing there. It's gone. And that whole system was done away with. <coughs> now, as he proceeds on, he talks about the matter of prayer. He talks about the essentials of having, when you pray, that you believe, that you have faith. And then also, two things he mentions here, and that you forgive. That you forgive others of their trespasses or their faults or their offenses against you. Because if you don't, then God's not going to forgive you your offenses. And he will not hear your prayer. Now that's the most amazing teaching. It's no wonder that people were amazed at what the Lord had to say. Because he taught them, Matthew says, in the Sermon on the Mount as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now the scribes and the chief priests are the very people he's confronting here. The Sanhedrin. We would have called them the, the top dogs, the top brass, the religious leaders. Those who were held in authority and esteem by the nation. <coughs> so we come to verse 27. It says they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, Luke tells us he was teaching. Who does he encounter again? But the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now notice the, the articles there. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. All of these indicative of three distinct groups of people that were confronting the Lord Jesus. And two of these primarily making up the religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin. And so they said to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, this was really not a bad question. It was the responsibility of the Sanhedrin as the religious leaders to seek out anyone who was teaching in the temple to be sure they had proper credentials. Who gave them the authority to be teaching there? It wasn't such a bad thing in that sense. <coughs> and you'll notice it doesn't say 
by what authority are you teaching? But by what authority are you doing these things? Probably a reference back to the day before when he cleansed the temple and threw out the money changers and those who were selling the sacrificial animals to the pilgrims who had made their way to Jerusalem. And so Jesus answered and said to them, now of course, this, this is a, an important point, this matter of authority. Where did Jesus get his authority to do what he was doing? Well, in the next verse, he responds just like rabbis would typically respond. He asks them a question. I will also ask you one question and then answer me, he said. And I will tell you then by what authority I do these things. If you can answer my question, I can tell you by what authorities, or what authority rather, I'm sorry, that I do, <coughs> excuse me, these things. So their question brought up a question by Jesus. And if they had the ability to answer this question then, that, that would determine if Jesus would reveal the source of his authority. Now, if you look at the next verse, it's rather interesting. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. It's rather interesting that, you know, if they could answer this question, then they would know the answer to their question of where Jesus got his authority. Because the argument would go like this, as it says in verse 31, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe him? <coughs> in other words, if, if it's from heaven, then we know it's from God. And you didn't believe in John's baptism. You rejected it. Even though, you remember when we were back in Mark chapter 1? And it says the people were coming out to him and it was an imperfect tense indicating they were coming and coming and coming. If not by the thousands, at least by the hundreds. But the implication is they came over a period of time and probably, indeed, probably thousands were baptized. You remember we also mentioned that they said the city would swell by as many as 30, 30, 40,000 pilgrims at Passover from all parts of the country would make their way to the capital city. And so when they, when they were reasoning among themselves, thinking this over, how they were going to answer this question, you get the idea that immediately they saw there was a problem here. We have got a dilemma because how we answer is going to put this thing right back on us. Of course, that's what Jesus intended. If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? Well, you see, the common people did believe. They did go out and get baptized. They did repent of their sins. And you might also remember that we said that this ministry of John the Baptist and calling the people out from the city, away from 
everything that that city stood for in terms of its religious um, departure from the scriptures. He called them out all the way down to the River Jordan, out into the wilderness. Couldn't he have baptized them somewhere else? Most certainly. But it was a call to separate themselves from everything that the religious leaders stood for, which was everything against what God intended for them to be. And so if they said from heaven, that would have been an acknowledgement that John, God had sent John. John's ministry had authority. John's ministry was something we should have believed and responded to ourselves. And they didn't. But then they said, if we say from men, they feared the people. Why did they fear the people? Because they did believe. They held John to be a prophet. Whether you like to, you know, whether you realize it or not, to have rejected John and just rejected his ministry and say he was no prophet, he had no authority from God, he was just sent from men. Somebody, you know, tapped him on the shoulder, gave him the authority, and said, "John, go out there and preach." And da 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 da. And he would have had the whole city of Jerusalem coming down on these religious leaders because of their refusal to believe John. And if they refuse to believe John, and if they refuse to believe that his authority came from God in heaven, then that was tantamount to rejecting the Lord Jesus and not believing in his authority to do the things that he was doing. John was baptizing Jesus was cleansing the temple. And so they answered and said, we do not know. When you're caught in the trap, what do you do? <coughs> you be evasive. And you just say, I don't know. The problem was they did know. They knew. They just lied. And they rejected Christ. So consequently, he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You know, this, this wasn't the first time. Over in John chapter 1, it tells us that the Sanhedrin had sent some representatives to, to Jesus asking him about his authority. This wasn't the first time that he had had an encounter with them. Now, uh, <coughs> we have this, one of those, um, what do you want to say, unfortunate chapter breaks here because it continues right on in chapter 12. He doesn't end here. But it says, then he began to speak to them in parables. Who's the them? Still the Sanhedrin, still the chief priests, still the scribes. And he began to speak to them, he says, in parables. Why did he do that? Why did he switch and begin to teach at this point 
in parables. I can tell you really one reason. It's because of their response right here in verse 33 when they said, we don't know. Because all that was was an indication of what was going on in their heart and their refusal to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and accept his authority as being from God. And you know what happens every time that happens? Jesus begins to speak in parables. When we refuse to believe the word of God, then God begins to pull the shade down over our eyes so that even though we see, we can't see. And even though we hear, we can't hear. Turn back to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 13. I think you know this one well. But this is the very thing that was going on back here. It says in verse 2 that Jesus got into a boat and the multitude stood on the shore and he spoke many things to them in parables saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. <coughs> and, he, and telling of this parable, in verse 9 he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, to understand, to believe. But in verse 11, he says, because it has been given to you, or excuse me, they said in verse 10, why do you speak in parables? He says, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. Why? Because they didn't believe. That was because of their rejection back here in chapter 12. They had rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry and his word. And so now the shade is coming down. And as he speaks this parable about the sower, they heard every single word that the multitude heard. Everything. But hearing, they couldn't hear. But the ones who believed, who also heard, heard. In other words, it's like we were saying, as if we were to say something like, do you get my drift? You know, sometimes we beat around the corner and we don't really say what we want to say, hoping that somebody will just understand, they'll, they'll get it. Well, the ones that believed God, they heard. And so in verse 12, he says, whoever has to him more will be given and he will have abundance. Look at verse 13. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Why? Because just like the religious leaders here in Mark chapter 11, verse 33, it was the condition of their heart. We don't know. But they did. Because of their rejection, the shades came down and Jesus begins to speak and teach 
in parables. And so he teaches them this parable about the vineyard. Now it says here in our English translation, a man planted a vineyard. But if you want to look at that literally, it's reversed. And I'm trying to find where I put my note in here. It says in reverse, it says a vineyard a man planted. Now why do you suppose that it would be intentionally this way? A vineyard a man planted. Well the reason is because the focus is not on the man. The focus is on the vineyard. The man is just referred to in the parable just because he has to enter the scene and as the events you know, make their turn he has to be somewhere involved in all of this thing but the vineyard is the main focus of the parable and not only that but it's the cost involved the great expense the investment that goes in to planting this vineyard now it's a business proposition because you'll notice that he, he leases it out Divine dressers, <laughs> it says there in verse 1. And so he, what he's doing, he goes out and he plants all of, the, all of, the, all of these. He goes to a, a great deal of expense to make sure that it's everything that is needed to produce the fruit of the vine is there. He puts a hedge around it either a stone wall or a hedge of thorns to protect it, to keep thieves out, to keep wild animals out. He then, it says, he dug a place for the wine vat. So he, he out of stone, he hewed this place where he could crush the grapes. And not only that, dug a vat down below it so all the juice could run down to the vat. And then third, it says he built a tower. A tower that would be for <coughs> keeping an eye, excuse me, keeping an eye on the vineyard. It had storage rooms in it, a place to store their equipment and, and whatever else they had need of. And it says he went into a far country. So he left the responsibility and care for this vineyard on these tenant farmers here, these vine dressers. <coughs> these who had uh, rented, as it were, the vineyard. Now that kind of thing happens in farming all the time. People own a farm, like my uncle. He's 93. He's too old to farm it, so he rents the ground out. And a neighbor from down the road from my mom farms the ground. And every year when the crop is harvested, when he sells the crop, then out of that he pays the rent to my uncle for renting the ground. And whatever's left over after they have paid for their seed and their fertilizer and the cost of cultivating and reaping the harvest, if there's anything left over, the profit goes to the one renting the ground. Now that was the expectation here because it says in verse 2, at vintage time. In other words, at the season when fruit was expected to be harvested. Now, 
in just planting this vineyard, it was going to take a little while. Uh, back in Leviticus 19, it tells us that it would take three years for the crop to produce. In the fourth year, they were to give it to the Lord. And then in the fifth year, they could take everything for themselves. So apparently some time had passed. And as they were waiting for the opportunity, uh, <coughs> the, vine, the owner, which by the way, we'll soon see if you haven't figured it out already, is God. And the vineyard represents Israel. God planted the vineyard, Israel, and he was expecting fruit. And so at Benny's time, he sent a slave to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. Well, we know what happened to him. They took him and beat him, and then they sent another one, and they killed him. And finally, you get down to verse 5. It says that he sent another, and him they killed, and many others. <clears throat> well, you talk about patience on the part of the owner in seeking to collect his rent. Sending slave after slave and many others seeking to collect what was rightfully his. And they beat him up, they threw him out, killed him. Finally, as a last resort, it says in verse 6, he also sent him to them last. Who? His son. The son is a much higher standard than a slave. Surely they will honor him. Surely they will pay him the rent that's due. And they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So not only is this vineyard representative of Israel, but all those who had been sent to the tenant farmers, being the religious leaders, those who held the responsibility over the nation, had been sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And they killed the prophets. And then not only did they kill the prophets, they killed the son. So in verse 8, they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Cast him out of the vineyard. This is an expression that ought to be very vivid and meaningful to us because to be cast out meant to be separated from the community of Israel. You remember that Old Testament expression, cut them off. That's exactly what that expression meant. That if they were cast out, if they were cut off, if they were killed, they were severed from all the rights and privileges of Israel. And so Jesus they cast out. And that was the intention of the religious leaders. To sever him from all the rights and privileges that belonged to the nation of Israel. How did they do that? 
They took him outside the city to crucify him. Hebrews says that he was outside the camp. And what does the writer to the Hebrews tell us? If we want to approach him, we go outside the camp also. We are to avoid all the religiosity that the world brings to us and all that Christendom seeks to heap upon us to use to control us, to use to hinder anyone from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. They cast him out. And that's exactly what they did. But you see, you remember what Jesus said that he would do to the city and to the temple? Just a few short years later, almost 40 years later, the city was destroyed. You know, there were still parts of the city standing. There were buildings there and houses and so on. But everything that that city stood for in the temple was taken down and destroyed stone by stone. Every last one. Nothing was left. And the Jews were scattered. And it remained that way. And still remains that way to this very day. Now, of course, there's a day coming. There is a day coming when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to restore. But notice what he says then. <coughs> he says in verse 9, Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And that's where Israel is even today. Oh, yes, they're, they're there in unbelief. But it's not really theirs. Not yet. But verse 10 has something exciting to say. I mean, really exciting. This is amazing. Because when you come back to this verse in the Old Testament and the Psalms, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The metaphor changes from a, a vineyard to a building But the very stone which those builders, the religious leaders, have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What a reversal. The one that they threw out, the one they cast out of the city, out of the camp, and sought to cut off, has now been elevated to become the chief cornerstone. And the psalmist says, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Can you imagine when that day comes and Israel recognizes what they have done to the Lord Jesus, and they realize what <coughs> God has done to elevate His Son to this regal position of king over all the earth? 
or so the scripture says, they'll look upon him whom they have pierced. And they will recognize the very one. Here he says, it's the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Did you know if you go back to Psalm 118, and we've been there several times, and I think I've told you more than one occasion, it's one of my favorite psalms in all the scripture. This was one of the psalms that the pilgrims would sing as they were going up that long road up to Jerusalem. On their way to not just Passover, but the other feasts that they were required to attend, like the Feast of Tabernacles. And they would sing this song, this hymn, this song. And the Lord calls their attention to it and asks them, do you understand this? In light of what I've been teaching you in this parable, do you understand? Well, of course they didn't. Their eyes were blinded. Seeing they couldn't see, hearing they couldn't hear. Why? Because they had first already rejected John the Baptist. And in rejecting John the Baptist, they had nothing else to do but reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what did they do? Verse 12, they sought to lay hands on him. The very thing that Jesus said they would do, to, the vine dressers would do to the owner of the vineyard, that's what they did. They didn't get the message. Oh, they heard it with the ear, but it never got down here. And so they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. Though they, they did not understand the depth of meaning of the parable, they knew it was against them. And so they left him and went away. Why? His hour had not yet come. It wasn't his time. And they went to seek another opportunity. You know, in all the years of Jesus' ministry, from the very beginning, when they first met the Lord, and they rejected him, and it says they sought to kill him, they never, ever stopped plotting the entire time on how they could do away with this guy. And in the end, they would indeed crucify our Lord Jesus Christ. But the crucified one, one day, will become the chief cornerstone. Now many argue or disagree or have their opinions about what the chief cornerstone really is. Oftentimes when we think of a cornerstone, you know, we think of the stone that's first laid and then, you know, you, you build out from that. And once you've got a, a stone laid, a corner, then everything else fits in conjunction to that. Others think that it was uh, the stone on the top wall in a prominent place. Others think it was more like, you know, the keystone in an arch that holds everything together. 
point of Jesus' teaching is he is the chief cornerstone. Wherever it's located, it's going to be prominent. Wherever it's located, you're going to know who the chief cornerstone is and what he represents. And when that day comes, when he comes back to restore Israel and establish his kingdom and rule not only over them and take his rightful place, but also over the whole earth, then we will know. Then the whole earth will know. There won't be any need to teach in parables in the kingdom. Here, yes, but in the kingdom, no. Because everyone will know. Everyone will know. The question is, is do we know today? That's the real question. You know, and if we say, if we say, oh, I see. Oh, I understand. Do you know what that means? To read the scriptures and say, oh, I, I see that. I understand. Do you understand what the implication is for each one of us right here? To respond in obedience? To walk like a true disciple? To worship as a true believer? And not just go through the motions as Israel of old was doing? And had been doing for hundreds of years. Though the prophets preached to them. They refused to turn. And they refused to come back. So there's coming a day. There's coming a day. When we will be called to account for these things. And so if we say I see. Or I hear what you're saying. Make sure that we have the heart response that the Lord desires of us. And that heart response demands belief. It demands faith. Let us be people of faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to express our gratitude and our thanksgiving again to you for all that you've given us in Christ Jesus. As we read these accounts in the Gospels and we understand the life of our Lord Jesus Christ on this earth, how they rejected the prophets and how they rejected Him. And yet that day is coming when He will be exalted far above and He will reign supreme over this earth. And Lord, we long for that day. We look to that day when we might reign with Him. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.